1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and I will be your host today. I'm speaking with Dr. Paul Cantino. He's the professor of great books at Pepperdine University, who's been teaching the Brothers Karamazov, the subject of the book we're discussing, for over 30 years. Uh, And we're talking about the 2020 Dostoevsky's Incarnational Realism, Finding Christ Among the Karamazovs. Dr. Cantino, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you, Diana.
1: So let's start with just uh, sort of an introduction to your work as a whole. So, could you talk a bit about your academic background and sort of your experience and research on Dostoevsky so far and how this book came to be?
0: I was a graduate student at Notre Dame uh, in the 1980s. The theorist that spoke most deeply to me when I was a graduate student, I discovered kind of late in the game uh, was Mikhail Bakhtin. I think my first publication was a review of the Holquest-Clark biography, which enthralled me and seemed a wonderful alternative to the then reigning deconstruction and the kind of rising uh, critique theory um, infused by Foucault and others. This was not a conversation that especially moved me, but when I read about Bakhtin and his his understanding of words as meaning shared between two people, the whole dialogical philosophy that he developed, well, I loved it. And after I wrote that article, I think I must have heard Carol Emerson speak at a MLA. Introduced myself was at the time editing a journal called Religion and Literature and asked her to do an article for us. And uh, long story short, I found myself in the company of the most wonderful group of Slavists, including Carol. She sent me the manuscript, not yet published, of the book she was writing with Saul Morrison. And uh, I had read The Brothers Karamazov in a seminar in 1983 by this time it was about 88 89 and that was the novel i loved the most even though my specialty was victorian english novel i ended up writing a dissertation where i looked at conrad and gaskell and godwin but predominantly at the brothers karamazov and the confessional dialogue that um really interested me in the 19th century novel predominantly in Dostoevsky. I got a job in a great books program. Uh, it wasn't called great books. It was called texts and Contexts at Christ college in Valparaiso taught there for 12 years, was able to teach grand, um, the brothers Karamazov at the end of seven of uh, the last seven weeks of the academic year. And, um, it's just become part of my, my, my teaching life and my, my scholarly life—I've written about other things, but I've—I I began publishing articles on the novel, and uh, it's culminated in this book.
1: So let's talk about the Brothers Karamazov sort of, especially for listeners who might not be familiar, right? It's this international cultural phenomenon has been since its publication, not just in Russia and not just in the 19th century, but for as long as it's it's been out, right? Um, pretty much every genre and field you can imagine all over the world. Um, so just in kind of the broadest strokes possible, could you give a little bit of a background on the novel and its reception and how it became this kind of massive, uh, uh, as I said, cultural phenomenon? Phenomenon that it is today.
0: Well, it is indeed a phenomenon, and there's so many books on it. So many from the last thirty years. Um, it's hard to keep track of them. One of the ones that I have found helpful, and I recommend to students, along with Robin Miller's study of the novel, is uh, Julian Connolly's uh, recent book, and he's got a whole last chapter on critical reception. And when I was rereading it, I was amazed at how. The novel received mixed reviews when it first came out, Um, as he points out, the reviews often reflected the ideological stance of the critic and journal in which the review appeared. Um, And reviewing this, um, what, what strikes me is that the religious thinkers were the ones who later began reading the novel, Bogakov, for example, Sergei Bogakov writing in 1902 and Seeing in the Grand Inquisitor much what I see—that is not so much a critique of Catholicism, although it is that—but um, more a, uh, a critique of um, the way a certain kind of totalitarian mindset um, can uh, can take form. Um, and uh, actually, no, this is Ivanov. Um, uh, uh, Ivanov. Uh, said it was directed much more against godless and materialist socialism, another great religious thinker. And, of course, uh, Burjaya wrote about Dostoevsky. I think that when it was translated um, into French, I think that's when Nietzsche first read Dostoevsky into German, Hermann Hesse, uh, Freud, um, and into English. Um, And you have writers as varied as Virginia Woolf and Conrad and James. It became a phenomenon. So early in the 20th century, when this international array of writers are discovering Dostoevsky, um, he becomes a must read. And um, even in fields as varied as um, psychology with Freud uh, or philosophy, Wittgenstein, it made a profound impression on him um, uh, to the current day. And it's really a, a world classic. I, I'm very heartened when. My Slavist colleagues remind me that this is a book that belongs not just to Slavis, but to the whole world. It speaks to all of us universally.
1: Absolutely. And I'll, now later on in the interview, we'll talk a little bit more about your teaching and sort of how your students receive it, because that's always um, something that I think for many undergraduates, particularly reading The Brothers Karamazov is really an event. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned Bakhtin um, and sort of your uh, acquaintance with uh, the study of Dostoevsky. So could you talk a little bit more about sort of where your study is situated in the scholarship on the novel, which as you mentioned is vast, and which theorists, um, including Bakhtin, you found uh, useful and impactful in constructing this reading?
0: Well, it's uh, it's something of a Catholic reading. I think uh, some of the kind words on the cover of the book, uh, make that clear. And I, I, I make it clear even in my prologue that that's the perspective I'm coming from. I, I believe there are deep affinities, a deep kinship between Orthodoxy and Catholicism. And it's the Christian imagination that I'm emphasizing, but especially in its sacramental and cataphatic dimensions. And, um, Somebody I read, he's not well known, he ought to be, uh, way back in 1983 when I was reading the Brothers Karamazov in a graduate seminar with Tom Werge, um, William F. Lynch, a Jesuit thinker who wrote a book called Christ and Apollo, uh, wrote a number of other books, Images of Hope, Images of Faith, which I draw on. But that particular one understood Christ to be a model of the descent into the particular into the finite, into the gritty, rough reality that we live in, as opposed to kind of leaping Apollo-like into the ether for inspiration. Um, It's against a, a kind of romantic flight from the finite, and rather Christ, who's born in a particular time and place, lives a short 33 years in a particular town, um, is an example of that embrace and descent and passage through the finite. So anyway, I think I probably made allusions to Lynch when I wrote about Dostoevsky at the end of that semester. It never left my mind. I went back and read more of his books. He is the second theorist who uh, I would say, along with Bakhtin, um, I found inspirational. But as far as um, the whole world of Slavis, um I, I found so many people who, you know, it, it, you don't want to leave anyone out. But I, I must say, again, Carol Emerson was enormously helpful. I was blessed to meet Diane Oning-Thompson um, years ago at a conference at Holy Cross that was devoted to the brothers Karamazov. Met Joseph Frank there. He responded to my correspondence. And my goodness, Bob Belknap, Victor Terrace. But then more recently, Carol Apollonio, Brian Armstrong, people, I think, in the, in, in, in the acknowledgements, the late Robert Byrd um, and uh, Deborah Martinson, uh, Greta Metzner Gore, Susan McReynolds, Amy Rahner. There's so many people I'm going to leave people out. You know, uh, Robin Miller was an inspiration from the first time I met her, which I think was in the early 90s when I first started presenting on, on the Brothers Karamazov. Um, and all of these folks have been tremendously uh, supportive. Uh, Gary Rosenschild and I had a debate: should Dimitri escape to America or should he go to Siberia? And it was like a it was like a legal proceeding, and it was lovely. And I, I so anyway, I, I can't begin to tell you. Uh, I'm looking at a picture of a group of them right now. Uh, how how wonderful um, these people were. I got to know Rob R- Rowan Williams uh, a few years ago in his book. Uh, you know, just, just marvelous. So I, I just find the, the critical work to be um, not only intellectually um, engaging, but, um, you know, morally and spiritually inspiring. There's something about even going to a Dostoevsky conference that I come away enriched and um, fortified. <laughs> you know, what, what did, what did his readers, when it was being serialized, they gathered around him and they said, we've become better people because of the Karamazovs, and uh, honestly, and you probably know this yourself, Diana, it's a wonderful community of people, good people um, who are committed to the intellectual life and aren't afraid to ask uh, the deep moral, religious questions that... um, that Dostoevsky raises, and there's so many wonderful rising new scholars—Denise uh, Sernaklyev, and well, Yuri Corrigan. You know, I can't begin to name all the names, but but it's been it's been a great blessing.
1: Absolutely. Now You mentioned this, um, the capacity of the Brothers Karamazov to inspire readers to be better people. Um, And this is something I found really interesting and um, kind of different in your approach. And as you mentioned in the preface, this is quite a countercultural reading, right, given the way that literature, the role of literature is seen in academia predominantly today. And even as you mentioned, when you were studying Dostoevsky initially. Um, So could you talk a little bit more about this approach and why you think this kind of reading has fallen out of favor?
0: Well, Why It's Fall Out of Favor is a, is a, what, a 70-year-old story. I mean, it starts with the new critics. You know, any kind of formalism that wants to keep life apart from the study of literary work um, is going to be suspicious, perhaps, of this kind of a reading. Um, But when you talk about students reading The Brothers Karamazov in their undergraduate life and it being an event, often a transformative event. Well, clearly something more is going on than just formal analysis. It's speaking to their souls, I dare say. And, uh, you know, as I said, in the eighties, you know, the, the structuralist, post structuralist stuff didn't do much for me. Um, The, uh, you know, kind of hermeneutic of suspicion that uh, Rita Felsky talks about in the limits of critique in which one is always trying to unmask powers, uh, structures of power. Um, you, you know, I think all of this is, is 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 part of a large conversation that should take part um, in any interpretive um, discussion, but should be part of any interpretive discussion. But, um, you know, for me, it's that encounter with character and what they go through. And uh, we know that they are words on the page, that they're markers, they're signifiers, but They become real to us, and um, mentioning Felsky again, her recent book that she's done with Toro Moy and Amanda Anderson, Character, Three Inquiries in Literary Studies, um, they they, they are in unison saying, we've been ignoring this. We've been ignoring the thing that really matters to students when they encounter these great novels. Um, And I'm speaking specifically of novels here um but uh characters uh well i'll just read from the beginning of toro moi's essay we can love them we can hate them acknowledge them imitate them be inspired by them carry them in our hearts and minds think about them when we want to understand our own lives her point is that even though they're fictional they place a claim on us claims that we may feel compelled to respond to I just finished a, um, earlier today, a final meeting with a group of students in my great books class, and they were talking about Karamazov. They're all writing long papers about it. Ivan Karamazov, along with Alyosha Dmitri, Dmitry and Grushenka, have made powerful impressions upon them. They're not going to forget them. I mean, Alyosha at the end says, let us remember. They're going to remember their deep encounter through close reading and conversation with these characters and the questions they ask, and not only the questions in a kind of philosophical, abstract sense, but rather in the living way in which Alyosha responds to Yvonne when Yvonne asks those questions. They'll remember that encounter when they engage their own brothers and sisters and friends and family. Um, I'm glad that that Rita Felski and and her cohort are uh, reprising this conversation. Um, Mikhail Epstein does it when he writes his book, A Transformative Humanities. And, you know, as Felski and others point out, I mean, (laughs) it's pointed out all the time. um, The humanities are in dire straits. I mean, the job market, I don't think, has been worse than it is right now. It was bad when I started. I was advised that, you know, don't think you're going to get a job. And I was incredibly blessed to be able to find a find a job that has led me to this vocation. But um, I think if English studies, if literary studies are going to flourish, then they need to kind of recover that which made us fall in love with literature to begin with. And a lot of that is, is is engaging with character um, and engaging with the deep perennial questions that literature raises.
1: I think that's an especially sort of relevant discussion this year as we're hopefully coming to the end of the coronavirus lockdown, at least here in the U.S. Um, there's been some conversations, I think, and hopefully there'll be more about the role that art has played in sustaining people, right? So that we have all these social conversations about what meaning of essential was, right? And what, you know, what an essential worker means and is art essential? And I think after the last year, year and a half, I think the answer for most people is absolutely, right? Because without uh, movies and novels and TV shows and all these kinds of things, people just wouldn't have survived spiritually,
0: yeah, I, I, you know, I and this is maybe for myself rather than for others. I, I, I did probably watch more TV than I've watched in years, and I'm not sure that was especially nourishing. Okay, I mean, you know, but that said, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a yearning for beauty. I mean, I get these these emails saying the Getty's opening up. I can hardly wait uh, to go back to a museum. I'm in Los Angeles now, originally from New York, and uh, to be. Back on the East Coast and visiting the Met, and and um, yeah, people long for that. And uh, I have a friend, uh, Angela Alema O'Donnell, who's just written a collection of poems coming out of the COVID quarantine isolating experience. Um, yeah, so I think maybe we have to discriminate. I'm not sure this would have to be tested between life as it's presented on the screen. I'm I'm tired of screens. Maybe this is, you're just catching me at a zoomed out moment, but um, I hope it brings a renewed sense of what solitude and reflection and and reading, but I do want to say reading with others, you know, and and, and I have been in, in, in reading groups on Zoom and they've been wonderful. In fact, now that i said I'm Zoomed out, honestly, the the community that's been formed with the classes that I've had on Zoom and with some of these reading groups, it feels as strong as any as those I've had when we've met in person. Um, So at any rate, I hope so. I hope, and I always want to believe that through a time of trial and suffering, something good comes out of it. And I, I, I think that might be one of the things that Is good.
1: Uh, Now, I want to move towards uh, the sort of the uh, body of your book. So there's kind of two terms here that are important for understanding your argument and the way that you frame the study, Uh, which one is incarnational realism, which is in the title, and then the analogical imagination. Uh, So could you talk about what these terms mean vis-a-vis Dostoevsky's religious and literary imagination? And um, sort of to what extent is he informed by scripture and theology, uh, Russian Orthodox tradition, and maybe some other factors?
0: Well, you know, definitely Orthodoxy is his tradition. I mean, it's no secret that he didn't think much of Catholics or other Christians. Um, the anti-Semitism is uh, a blight that shows up in his nonfiction, especially. I try to address it a bit in my book. But um, Orthodoxy and Catholicism are both deeply sacramental. Um, And when you have sacraments, you've got things, you've got material things that mediate grace. And um, so the analogical, I'll get back to it, 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 it's certainly connected to the sacramental where anointing with oil or being uh, dipped into the water or receiving the bread and the wine as the body and blood of Christ, Um, all of the very tangible, physical aspects of the sacramental life are present in Catholicism and Orthodoxy, as is liturgy. Um, uh, I draw a very important phrase for all from the Orthodox divine liturgy with the help of Alexander Schmaman who first alerted me to it in his book For the Life of the World. Um, but liturgy is is vital to Catholics, too. You put your body into the corporate communal worship. Um, all this is to say that these ordinary, tangible, embodied, material things can point to that which is infinite and transcendent. Um, that's the analogical imagination, that um, the things of this tangible, finite world can point to the spiritual world. Um, to know the embrace of a parent is to somehow know the love of God uh, is like the love of God. Analogy always works like and yet unlike. God is transcendent, and certainly the apophatic tradition would emphasize the ways in which all of our words, all of our similes and metaphors fall short um, in describing the indescribable, ineffable, divine. But, um, <laughs> you know, we live in flesh. And, and and I guess this is where incarnation comes in. The fact that in the Christian imagination, God took flesh with all the limits that that entails in the incarnation, loved, ate with friends, got tired, suffered, um, suggests that there's a a, a kind of renewed importance to this fleshly finite life that that we live and this life not only matters not only because it's created by god and humans are created in god's image and likeness but as john of damascus said you know matter matters because god became matter for us out of love so it's the um recognition that the material that the tangible, that the physical, and, and, and the unexpected kinds of things that can happen in everyday life point us to the transcendent. Um, and I think that both orthodoxy and Catholicism have that in their tradition. And, you know, I mean, it's everywhere in the novel in the sense that these small tangible things like onions and a kiss and a pillow under the head of Dimitri or a pound of nuts given to him when he was a child, along with a lesson on the Trinity, become tangible and memorable transformative events. And they're uh, gracious events, but that grace is mediated through the tangible and the physical So the phrase, the analogical imagination, I think it was Andrew Greeley who told David Tracy he should have copyrighted the phrase. I'm looking at the book right now on my shelf. I mean, he's the guy who, who gave us that phrase. Um, And he, I think, opposes the analogical to the dialectical imagination. He sometimes, and I sometimes see this uh, myself in my own experience argues that the protestant imagination which is more word oriented than um the tangible physical is also more either or in its emphasis than both and and um this is sort of a truism in catholic studies but it's um a both and imagination that says well for example with love uh eros matters agape matters God loves us through agape, but um, we know desire as limited creatures, and our eros can be transformed or integrated with self-giving love and become caritas, um, uh, active love, if you will. I mean, I think active love in the novel manifests itself not as this pure self-abnegation, but um, in people like Dmitri, who were full of desire, but yet who want to be better and who want to love um, Grushenka, um, Alyosha himself, who embraces the earth at the end of Cana of Galilee in such a passionate uh, and committed way. Um, So I hope this begins to articulate what I mean by both incarnational and analogical. To me, they they go together. And the both-and, I must also say, would be to say that the cataphatic and the apophatic are both necessary, and they're both crucial dimensions in the Christian dimension. It's not in the Christian tradition. It's not an either-or. It's a both-and.
1: Dostoevsky had this mission to portray Christian love in action, right? And uh, it's sort of understood that Alyosha, the protagonist of the Brothers Karamazov is sort of the apotheosis of that. Um, But he does have a predecessor, which is uh, Prince Mishkin in The Idiot, um, who's considered kind of the failed attempt to create a a morally, ethically, spiritually perfect character. So could you talk about sort of uh, Prince Mishkin as the predecessor and how some of those ideas are more fully realized in the Brothers Karamazov?
0: I, I talk about Mushkin briefly in my book. Um, I read The Idiot in graduate school, I've reread it since then. I I, I guess the first part of the novel, I love Mushkin. I, he's mysterious. He arrives from Switzerland, and is that scene where he speaks to Astasha and others very directly and decisively, but that decisive note is lost in the course of the novel. Um, the love triangle between uh, Nastasha and Aglaya, and his inability to make a decision to to enact—I um, think what Alyosha shows so well—the capacity to see reality, but then act decisively in response to that vision—the um, the, the virtue of phronesis, practical wisdom—he's terribly unpractical, um, and. Um, I, I, when I first read it, I, I, I wrote a paper about it and, and, and argued that he was more of a Christ Monke than, than a Christ figure. Um, it's a heartbreaking novel. Um, but uh, with Alyosha, you know, there are these images in the novel that I love. For example, he leaves his father's house and he takes a role with him for the road. He knows he needs energy to keep going, and he keeps going. And it's one thing after another, you know, and he'll fail with Katerina. He'll fail... When he tries to deliver the rubles to Snigyarov, he'll talk about it with Lise, and then he'll go on and <laughs> listen to the rebellion and Grand Inquisitor to raid from Ivan, but he just keeps going. And somehow he sustains himself and uh, is sustained. Um, he makes a quick prayer. He knows how to take a shortcut when he needs to, to get from one place to another. He understands that time is precious. He's a lot more sure-footedly rooted in the finite, even as he's attuned to God and the infinite, especially in the Cana chapter. But um, Mushkin isn't, you know, and, and uh, I, I, I I mean, they're all great novels, uh, Crime and Punishment, Demons, The Idiot. And, and I sometimes say, and, and forgive me, it may seem very glib and, and just wrongheaded, they're great, but they're warm-ups for Karamazov because he pulls it all together there. <laughs> that's what I think. I mean, that's, everybody has their favorite. Um, I recommended to my students today, you know, if you haven't read Crime and Punishment, by all means, I'd prefer to say Sonya is the is the precursor than than Mushkin uh, to Alyosha.
1: I would have to agree with you. I think Brothers Karamazov is absolutely the the, the sort of crowning glory. Yeah. Everything else, you know, you can sort of uh, see the development of the other themes and the other novels that all kind of come yeah. together.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you know, it all comes together somehow, and to think that he did it right at the end of his life, um, uh, I'm reminded of, of Dante. I think he finished Paradiso as he was on his deathbed. Uh, Flannery O'Connor uh, finishing Parker's Back on her deathbed, which is which is an incredible story. Um, yeah, it's remarkable what people can do uh, at the end, uh, bringing it all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, and especially when you consider the, the importance of that kind of the last moment or the last stage of life that uh, it's played in Dostoevsky's uh, yeah. is particularly yes. uh, important here. Yeah. So I wanted to talk also about the role of confessional dialogue. It plays an important role in your study, and it's a crucial element, not just of this novel, but of again, of all of Dostoevsky's previous works. Um, So could you talk about to what extent is the confessional dialogue that's portrayed in Brothers Karamazov, informed by Russian Orthodox theology and tradition, and talk about some of the key confessional dialogues in the novel?
0: Yeah, that's what got me interested originally. My first published article on the book was back in the mid-90s on the Mikhail Zosima encounter. Mm-hmm. And it just fascinated me because I um, I think it's Elizabeth Hardwick that talks about the 19th century novel as engaging consistently the, um, the the serious problem of guilt, you know, guilt and responsibility. What do I do with this guilt? Um, and Dante, of course, you feel contrition, you confess, and then you, you do something, uh, penance Um, make reparations. Um, This drama is played out in Mikhail, uh, who comes as a mysterious visitor to Zasima. And when I reread it closely, it struck me that, and this is going back to when I discovered uh, some of Bakhtin's earlier writings, you know, the art and answerability and um, the philosophy of the act, that there was a balance between unfinalizability, respect for the unfinalizability, the freedom of the person who is confessing, but also a real emphasis on um, the need for closure, the need for action, what I was emphasizing in Alyosha as opposed to Mushkin. And um, the question of authority comes up, you know, Zasima whispers, go and confess. But then he hands Mikhail the scriptures. Um, John twelve twenty four except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. It can't bring forth life, uh, but if it does, it brings forth much fruit. Um, and then Hebrews, um, and um, how do we understand that authority in the light of the challenge to authority that we have in the Grand Inquisitor? I, I, I agree with Roger Cox, it's not really authority in the Grand Inquisitor, it's tyranny that we have, just as it's mystification and magic, not really miracle and mystery, but um, it struck me that the authority of uh, Zosima in eliciting Mikhail's confession and in bringing him finally to confess publicly, which was his heart's longing, his deepest wish, was a kenosis uh, of spirit, um, a self-emptying of his own agenda, not like the Grand Inquisitor imposing his will upon others, but finding what this person genuinely wanted to do, which was to confess the plan has been building for years. Um, of course he dies soon after there's another death scene. And you kind of wish we were talking about this. I'm doing a wonderful readers group with the Portland Catholic worker right now some Princeton folks are involved. Notre Dame and Simone Weil house is the name of the Catholic worker house, but people were complaining rightly, you know, well, where's the reparation? Now, this guy's done a terrible thing. He's murdered a woman. The family has suffered. The wrong guy was blamed. Um, Well, we don't see that so much. Um, Perhaps it's played out more with with Dmitry, the decision he faces. But to go back to Russian Orthodoxy and confession, you know, I I do want to mention that I am very excited for uh, Nadia Kizenko's forthcoming book, Good for the Souls, A History of Confession in the Russian Empire, Um, and just having encountered some of her work in, um, for example, the Oxford Handbook of Russian Religious Thought, or um, the collection Thinking Orthodox in Modern Russia, Culture, History, and Context. I mean, if I had time to revise this, or if I did a second edition, I would do much more with the Orthodox tradition of confession. I kind of use bakhtin and this tension between openness and closure that the good confessor brings to eliciting the confession from the person who's laden with guilt. But um, I make an argument using the tradition of Jesuit casuistry um, when I realize I should also have drawn on the Russian Orthodox tradition of oikonomia. Um, in which the emphasis is on leniency and mercy and the confessor is um, balancing, you know, the law with grace, if you will. Um, and uh, so anyway, I, I, there's always more to learn and more to incorporate. I remember that and, and I think uh, Naja Kazinko talks about a tican, uh Filaret, and others who who brought a renewed emphasis into the 19th century. Uh, Orthodox tradition of uh, confession the need for confession and um, that's something I I want to explore more learn more about I know it from my own Catholic tradition and again I think there's there's small differences but finally a deeper affinity between the two um, and uh, I guess speaking personally my own experience was was always good um, uh, as anything in this novel it cuts both ways you know that's one of the the great phrases that Dostoevsky uses, psychology cuts both ways, or it's a two-edged sword. And confession can become, and Robin Miller pointed this out years and years ago, uh, J.M. Coetzee has a wonderful essay about it. Others, Julian Connolly, others uh, have written about it. It can be self-aggrandizement. It can be kind of a form of nadrive, laceration. But when it takes the right form, It becomes um, a step of metanoia, a turning of the heart um, that is uh, a turn toward wholeness and uh, community um, and uh, resolution. So, I mean, I even read Yvonne's confession in court, tangled and broken as it is, as a great sign of hope um, because it's public. He's um, allowing himself to be seen. I love that expression that Rowan Williams uses in his book. Uh you gotta finally live publicly. You can't uh live in a shell. You've gotta be seen by others, and that means risk the risk of being judged by others and uh moving forward. So um the the confession scenes, I mean even little Kolya with Alyosha Yosha and the precocity chapter, they're they're very moving and um very fruitful. Um so yeah, that was my interest from way back, and uh, I, I uh, continue to be very, very interested. And as I say, I'm looking forward to Kazenko's new book, which I, I looked up, and it's coming out of Oxford University Press uh, in June. So I look forward to that.
1: Oh, that's good to know. Maybe uh, if no one else has grabbed it, I will interview her you as
0: should, well. You should. She, and I saw her on video, and she's a, she's a good interview, too. So <laughs> I've never met her, but I, I, I'm very interested in her work.
1: Um, and the topic of confessional dial, uh, dialogue or confession in Russian Orthodoxy, I work on this um, in terms of the medieval period and sort of the evolution from confession in the Russian Orthodox Church that was very focused on behaviors and avoid avoiding certain behaviors and the confession sort of being an interrogation of the person and sort of a, a, an opportunity to teach what was right and wrong behavior to the way that it starts, starts to take shape, particularly in the 19th century with the uh, eldership influence. And I think that's something that um, has a lot to do with where Dostoevsky was going with those. Yeah,
0: stories. I do too. I do too. It becomes, I mean, it becomes therapeutic. I mean, it really does. Um, and uh, very beneficial. Yeah, very unlike an interrogation. I mean, interrogation is what meteor goes through, and it has a very, very different kind of result. Uh,
1: Now, another major sort of religious, spiritual question that Dostoevsky asks in all of his novels that, again, has kind of its fullest development here is the question of theodicy, and particularly as it relates to the suffering of children. Um, So could you talk about what does theodicy mean and uh, expand on the role that it plays in the Brothers Karamazov?
0: Yeah. A few weeks ago, I was in a dialogue with with a wonderful uh, Catholic theologian, uh, Terence Tilley. He goes by Terry, and he's written a book called The Evils of Theodicy. And uh, at another colleague's recommendation, I picked it up. And um, I think to get this as well as I can, Diana, I'm just going to read two paragraphs from my book. I mean, before I start reading, I'm just going to say this, that... The Odyssey means, Theos, D.K., uh, how do you justify the ways of God? Uh, this is what Milton is trying to do at the beginning of Paradise Lost, justify the ways of God to man. Well, um, how do you do that in the wake of Auschwitz? How do you do that in the wake of, uh, I mean, just the, the, the newspapers today and, and the suffering in uh, both Israel and the Gaza Strip? Um, I mean, there's, there's suffering everywhere, India. Um and innocent suffer and so anybody who reads rebellion um, for all the laceration that might be present in Yvonne's presentation of those horrors is moved by it um, and asks the same questions uh, why is this so how do you justify God allowing such awful things to happen I think that though uh, in my reading Yvonne offers himself a kind of too-neat theodicy, which he, of course, rejects, and Alyosha rejects, too. And Alyosha points to Christ. Now, is Christ a philosophical argument that explains why there's evil, the problem of evil and innocent suffering? No. But let me give this a try. At the end of rebellion, it's crucial to observe that Alyosha also rejects the non-Euclidean harmony, theodicy that posits the suffering of children as manure for some eventual eschatological harmony. Alyosha rightly rejects it. No orthodox Christian theology posits children's suffering as a prerequisite for eventual, eventual cosmic harmony. Zosima makes his protest very clear. There must be no more torturing of children. Woe to him who offends a child. Yvonne presents instances of human violence willfully imposed upon his sins. I mean, you you might remember he protests against child labor in factories. Theodicy lies when it nullifies the pain of innocent suffering by making it part of a quote-unquote mysterious mathematical equation or grand plan. Mm -hmm. Yvonne's picture of divine mystery in which parallel lines converge in infinity is itself another rationalistic enlightenment construction more akin to that of Leibniz, he's the one who invented the word best of all possible worlds" theodicy, than to incarnational realism. Terry Tilley argues that engaging, quote, in the discourse practice of theodicy creates evils, not the least of which is the radical disjunction of academic philosophical theology from pastoral counsel. Throughout the novels, Asima and Alyosha offer such counsel and care. I point out that we never do see Yvonne offering such care to children. Um, and 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 maybe I'll just read this this next paragraph if you don't mind. Drawing on Von Balthasar's Mysterium Pascal, a young scholar named Jacob Friesenhahn attempts to heal what he calls the radical disjunction between theology and pastoral counsel. I don't want to make it an either-or between theology slash philosophy and pastoral counsel, um, that there should be a way of bringing them together. And I think he presents possibly a more small orthodox understanding of innocent suffering. He writes, the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate historical expression of God's triune nature, such that by uniting our sufferings to the cross, we also thereby participate in the inner life of God. Dostoevsky's incarnational realism does portray children participating in the inner life of God. Even suffering Ilyusha, uh, to whom I discuss later, emerges as an image of Christ. Uh, But Zosima's protest remains an imperative. Incarnational realism seeks justice and the protection of innocence, even as it sees their suffering as participating in the canonic love of God. Um, When I talked about this with Terry Tilly. He rightly said, yes, but an adult or even a child of age like Ilyusha can consciously do that. Um, What about the five-year-old in the outhouse um, that Yvonne describes? Um, What is the difference between unwilling suffering from a child who isn't aware or cognizant enough to know what's going on or even animal suffering. I mean, Dostoevsky, uh, through Zasima, talks about that as well. Um, so this doesn't solve something, but it does offer a response to suffering. And I think, you know, that's what so many people have found um, inspiring about, about the book. It doesn't give you a philosophical answer. It gives you a narrative embodied response, and, uh, you know, I think of somebody like Dorothy Day, the founder of The Catholic Worker, who carried the book around with her, was inspired by Zosima's words of active love, um, which Zosima says is a harsh and dreadful thing. It involves labor and fortitude. It, it too, entails suffering. Um, this isn't a nice, neat answer. I don't think a great work of art like Dostoevsky's novel offers a nice, neat answer, but it it certainly engages those questions. When you look up theodicy in a philosophical dictionary, invariably people quote Ivan Karamazov as offering, as Dostoevsky himself saw, the best case, you know, against a just God allowing this innocent suffering. He knew what he was doing, and he attempted through narrative oblique form to, to respond to that challenge.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's sort of a, a grappling with the with the question, not so much a solution, as, as you mentioned. Um, and considering that I think theodicy is a topic that m- almost anyone who has questions about religion, that's one of the primary questions that people have, right? So uh, w- in terms of the discussion of the novel, making somebody a better person or being more reflective, I think this is one of the ways in which it offers uh, kind of food for thought, right? If nothing yeah, else.
0: Yeah. Very much. I mean, that's certainly... What my students attested to just this morning, when they spoke about the novel and how they felt deeply, Vaughn's questions are their questions, and they're still living the questions. They they know that they closed the novel without clear-cut answers. I mean, this is uh, occasionally the hubris of (laughs) our philosophical colleagues. Oh, this problem has been solved by, let's say, Alvin Plantiga's article and such data, and you know, I I. Think the world, and and I'm so grateful for philosophers like Alvin Plantinga, but it doesn't solve it. The the questions remain, and we live the questions.
1: Uh, now there's one more specific uh, aspect of uh, the monograph that I wanted to touch on, which is uh, your study of book 10. Uh, oh, yeah. and this is in which Alyosha spends time with children and leading up to his brother's trial for patricide. Uh, and you write that this is your favorite in the novel. So why is this so pivotal in the, as you write a uh, quote, symphonic whole of the novel?
0: Well, one of the things that I just taught it last week and I was Reminded again, you know, Paris von that that the new name of the dog, Zuchka, that that Kolya finds, and something like the Grand Inquisitor trains for three months. So he kind of the big grand miracle of presenting him to poor little Ilyusha. Um, Paris von means chimes, and throughout Book Ten there are just like an uncanny on every page number of chimes, with what's preceded it, and what comes after it. So it's very musical in that way. And it's not just that, you know, like, let's say Kolya, when he's babysitting, reminds me of Yvonne, who faces a decision, do I stay or do I go? Um, He's thinking about staying to protect his father, which he's promised to do, even though he's harboring desires that he die. Of course, he leaves, but Kolya (laughs) talks to the little ones, they're seven and eight, and well, you'll be brave, right? Don't go. And once he sees them crying, he stays. Um, that's a good sign. <laughs> you know, he, he, he gets that little job done. And he's, and he's uh, well, my mom used to have, I don't know if it's an old Irish expression. He's a holy terror. And uh, he gets outside me. He, he's teasing the peasants. And one of the things I noticed this time, too, is that when he's teasing the peasants and creating all this confusion and stuff, I don't know. I'm laughing along with him because I think he's such a funny prankster. I mean, there's some comic relief there. Of course, he gets it handed to him when the peasant turns the tables on him and points out that, yes, he's indeed more clever than Kolya is. But um, <laughs> maybe we become implicated a bit in his, his creation of disorder. I also uh, think that and in the book I, I do this, I, I link Kolya and Lise. I know there's the engagement short-lived engagement of Alyosha and Lise, but Lise is 14 and Kolya is almost 14, as he always is pointing out to people. And um, they're both adolescents. They're both in formation. It's a very sensitive time. Alyosha intervenes with both of them in a, in a generative kind and formative way. And in a way that he's vulnerable with them, you know, like he'll say to Kolya, I guess I am blushing, uh, And, you know, he's not this authority who kind of lords it over them is, but it's just right there with them and yet is respected by both of them as uh, a kind of an indispensable mentor figure. Um, You know, kids grow up and they they become Bolsheviks in 1917. I think Dostoevsky sees this coming, that, 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 that youth need formation. He, for all his conservative views... Toward the end of his life, always welcomed visits from young people and, and spoke with them and sympathized with them um, and their yearnings. Um, and it's like a breath of fresh air, too. Like it's November and the kids are outside, and you can kind of see the steam from their mouths as they're as they're talking. And I love Smurov, who's a very minor character, but is very clear-sighted and for all of his adulation of Kolya sees, you know, things that Kolya doesn't see because he's blinded by his pride. And uh, of course it it sets up for what I think is the wonderful ending of the novel. Not everybody agrees that it's a perfect ending. Some people think it's sentimental, the speech of the stone, but I think it's, um, it's kind of the perfect ending for what, what, musically feels like a kind of symphony coming coming to fruition somehow um and um i hope that helps a little bit
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was thinking, I think Nabokov was one of the people who found Dostoevsky sentimental, which oh. is
0: it's mind-blowing. But I think
1: Nabokov, you know, said it like to say things like that sometimes anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: he's not too, he's not too. Although uh, Julian Connolly has written on this, he, he he would say this in his lectures, but then, and I haven't read the article yet by Julian, but but he argues that Nabokov is more influenced by Dostoevsky and than oh, yes. he would have liked to say in his Cornell lectures, yeah. Absolutely.
1: Um, So you touched on before uh, your relationship with Carol Emerson and her influence. uh, And she actually wrote uh, the afterword uh, to this book. So could you talk a little bit about the themes that she addresses in that?
0: Well, I love what she did. I mean, I'll say this about Carol over the years. And you probably know people like this, too, Deanna. You read their work and it kind of inspires you to do your own. Um, Like The ideas are so rich and the connections are just, I mean, she has such a a wonderfully vibrant um, mind and inspiring prose style. What I love what she did was she connected what I was doing with opera renditions, ballet renditions. um, uh, A recent novel, Lauris, that I had read a few years before, she had heard a lecture by Rowan Williams on YouTube. And, and, um, you know, uh, I was just so pleased that she wrote it because from all those years ago, her work along with Saul's and her generosity um, was just such an influence. And so uh, to be in dialogue with her and for her to see connections that I wouldn't have known, given her deep knowledge of the whole Russian world, um, was, was, was a great honor and uh, just something I'm really grateful for. So I'm, I'm just so glad that, that she wrote that. It's a, it's a beautiful essay in itself.
1: Um, so another thing we've already uh, covered a little bit about Dostoevsky in the classroom and sort of the undergraduate relationship to the Brothers Karamazov. Um, can you talk just a little bit more about sort of what the study of Dostoevsky or, and particularly this novel looks like in your classroom?
0: Well, I'll give you one example. At the end of the time together, and I've been doing this since the first time I taught it at Notre Dame in 1989, the class selects an Alyosha, and then somebody plays the role of Kardashev and Smurov and Kolya, and we do a rendering of the speech at the stone. And um, the person who's selected as Alyosha is usually very apt, kind of a, I don't know, an Alyosha-like, quieter class leader um, that people have felt inspired by. I'm thinking of the three that were chosen in the three classes that I had this year. And um, it makes for a wonderful ritual closure. We, we actually discuss the scene first and pick up on the way it recapitulates so many themes in the novel. Um, I always take time doing it. I actually spend about six weeks, preferably seven weeks, um, used to do that back in Valparaiso where I taught before I came to Pepperdine. Um, it makes for a wonderful end of the semester experience. Um, it's an arduous experience. Some students were admitting that at the beginning they're having a very tough time, uh, not understanding what motivated these these characters. But um, given time and given rereading, especially those who are focused on, well, both Yvonne and Dmitri. now Yosh is clearly such a wonderfully uh, attentive, kind person. But Dmitri's a wild man, and Yvonne's an intellectual. And at first, they don't really see why Yvonne should feel guilty. But upon rereading, let's say those dialogues with Smirchikov, or the interviews uh, in November, or, or when he comes reading returns after his father's death, um, they begin to understand Yvonne. Um, and when they look more closely at Dmitri, and Grushenka, and we look closely at The Dream of the Babe, close reading, um, they begin to see more in these very complicated <laughs> characters. Um, and the more they dwell with it, and the more they converse with each other um, about it, uh, the more they carry with them. Um, it's my favorite book to teach. Um, I guess my other two are Augustine's Confessions and Dante's Divine Comedy. I, Refer to them as does René Girard, by the way, in his study of Dostoevsky, as having a kind of similar descent-descent pattern, um, a similar complexity, a similar, you know, um, deeply hopeful Christian vision. It may sound funny saying that about Dante, but that's because people stop with the Inferno; they don't keep going with Purgatory <laughs> and Paradiso, you know, and and Cain of Galilee, another dream. It it it, it has similarities to the beatific vision that Dante has in, in Canto 33. So um, I'm lucky enough to teach it, too, in the context of a great book's curriculum. Uh, that, that term sounds terribly old-fashioned to many ears, whoever hears this. But, um, you know, there's something very, very valuable about reading Karamazov after having read Augustine and Dante, after having read Kant, after having read Nietzsche's Genealogy and Morals, or Darwin's Origin of Species, um, Plato and Aristotle, etc. I mean, it gives you a, I don't know, a, a more expansive way of looking at, um, at these, these perennial questions. And and this year we brought in some 20th century thinkers. We we read it alongside uh, James Baldwin, who I'd forgotten this, but in *The Fire Next Time* he he says Dostoevsky changed his life. He's another one. He encountered Dostoevsky, and it was never quite the same. And Martin Luther King and Jacques Maritain and Simone Weil. And uh, um, but it's a wonderful novel to conclude with. Um, because it deeply speaks to the students and their concerns and uh, whatever their background. I mean, I happen to teach at Pepperdine, which is a Christian university, and um, yet there's still a great diversity of responses. And um, that's another thing that's important. I, I think it's a novel, because there are so many cross currents in it and you've got to take Yvonne's challenge very seriously, that it's best approached in dialogue, that you've got to have polyphony in the classroom to kind of appreciate the polyphony in the novel, and um, and that's just been one of the joys of my, my teaching experience uh, over the years.
1: Wonderful. Um, so as we're um, at the end of our conversation, I wanted to wrap up by asking you
0: uh, what you're working on currently. Oh, uh, I'm taking a breather, but... <laughs> 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 I want to read that book by Nadja Kazenko, but I'm going to look at, um, I think I want to look more deeply at practical wisdom and phronesis um, and um, maybe the way it plays out in fiction. Um, I was talking to our daughter, our youngest daughter, yesterday. You know, I mean, the way we live in such a polarized, um, not very polyphonic discourse situation where people take one or the other side and don't look at the complexity, don't look at the ambiguity, the, the muddy middle, um, whatever the issue is. And um, I think that phronesis, which is the practical wisdom that guides us in decision making. I mean, there's there, there's the universal law. Well, how do I apply it in this particular situation? Um, and that's going to vary. Um, it, it seems to offer a possible way forward. Uh, Alistair McIntyre's uh, most recent book. He's he's one of these amazing scholars, like Charles Taylor and and, and others before him, Paul Ricoeur and others who who Louis Dupré, whom I uh, just admire and work well into their 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 older age. But anyway, his more recent book is. Let me look at the title here Ethics in the Conflicts of Modernity. And um, so I'm reading that right now in the hope that it'll help me uh, find a way into the next project, um, which will probably engage literature. I I, I love grappling with narratives and characters. And um, so we'll see where that takes me. Great.
1: Uh, Well, today I have been speaking with Dr. Paul Contino of Pepperdine University about his 2020 book, Dostoevsky's Incarnational Realism, Finding Christ Among the Karamazovs. Uh, Dostoevsky's Incarnational Realism is now available via Cascade Press. Dr. Contino, thank you very much for joining me today.
0: Oh, thank you, Deanna. It was a real pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.